Welcome back to the Like a Bigfoot podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ward. This is episode number 186 with Ryan and Emily Wanless. Um, and guys, I got to say, I am so excited for this episode. Uh, I These are two of my absolute favorite returning guests. Um, favorite people I've had on the show to talk all about ultra running. Uh, Ryan, the last episode with him was episode number 133. And it was all about the time <laughs> that he decided he was going to run 135 miles through northern Minnesota during a polar vortex, which is bonkers, insane crazy. And last time I talked to Emily was episode number 157. And we talk all about the Midwestern ultra running scene and uh, her training for the CCC which is one of the biggest ultras in the world, which uh, Emily took on last summer. And we actually get an opportunity to catch up with both of them uh, this week. And we do hear a bit of Emily's story from CCC and how incredibly difficult uh, the mountains uh, in the Alps actually are, um, which was really cool. Um, I reached out because... Both Emily and Ryan are up in Alaska right now, and when we recorded the podcast, they were days away from Ryan taking on the Iditarod Trail Invitational, which is a 350-mile race in the insanely cold, brutal March winter in Alaska. Uh, and it's on the legendary Iditarod Trail. And it's just something that I've said it before. I did a podcast with Steve Cannon about biking the Iditarod. And there's something about that trail and just Alaska in general that just captures my imagination. And really kind of like it goes back to when I'm a ki- when I was a kid and I was thinking about what is the wilderness like? What is what is it like to go on an adventure? And when I picture that I'm picturing Alaska and I'm picturing what Ryan is currently running through. Um, so this episode, we talk all about his preparation, his expectations, um, some pro tips he's gotten along the way. Uh, we kind of talk about, um, both of their previous races, going into this so like i said emily we talk about ccc and ryan we talk about uh the tescobia 160 in wisconsin and this year he took on arrowhead 135 again and how that was just like a completely different experience from last year so we will get into that a little bit as well um right now just so you guys have kind of an update and i i'm putting this episode out a couple days early and there'll be another one coming later this week but <clears throat> i wanted to do that because ryan is currently in the middle of the race uh he's let me see where i'm at here he is 85.7 miles in i've been kind of looking at his tracker uh throughout the day he just got off this river it looks like you just ran on top of this frozen over river for for quite some time and he's approaching the uh big mountain range that he's gonna traverse on his way to mcgrath alaska um so that's coming up in a few days probably i don't know i don't know how long it's gonna take him but i do kind of think like the more people 
cheering him on. Like, who knows if he can sense it out in the, <laughs> out in the frozen tundra of Alaska. Uh, I don't know if he's going to be able to sense all of us cheering him on from our computers um, from all around the world. But at in the off chance that he can... Like, I just want him to know, like, we're rooting for him. We're cheering him on. We're trying to, we're hoping that he stays safe, but that he has uh, an adventure of a lifetime. So uh, I'm psyched to hear about it. I'm really excited to share this episode. Um, This is for all of us out there who are dreaming big or who have these insane goals or giant goals. tasks giant undertakings that most people would kind of consider wacky or consider insane this is this is for all of us so get out there get after it um let's get let's get into the podcast guys this is the like a bigfoot podcast number 186 with ryan and emily wanless all about the iditarod All right, guys. Uh, first of all, I'm so excited to uh, bring you guys back on the show. So I'm here with Ryan and Emily Wanless. And by here, I mean sitting in front of my computer, calling them on Skype because they are up in Alaska right now um, getting ready for the Iditarod. And guys, I'm like super pumped to just nerd out with you guys. Yeah, we're, we've been pretty pumped too. Um, kind of a lot of research and unknown and development and we've been up here for about five or six days and uh like after day one it was kind of like i'm ready for it to start (laughs) yeah yeah definitely can you guys just real quick describe for everybody you sent me a video right before starting and uh emily said this is the most alaskan place on earth yeah so uh we jumped in the car we're running errands today and i asked ryan where we were going and you know we stopped at the grocery store and and the pharmacy, and then we pulled up to this building, and it's the Alaska Fur Exchange, and it has the most impressive collection of everything animal part you could ever imagine, from fur to bone to antler, um, but it's all kind of native uh, carvings and things like that. And she, We were talking with a woman, and she said that it was um, all goes to, like, local communities, and they use every bit of every part of every animal that comes through the door. And despite having a pretty funky smell, it was uh, an amazing experience just walking through the door. That's super cool. I I, When I first uh, messaged you guys about, you know, possibly doing the podcast again, um, I think I asked you, Emily, I was like, is Ryan going to update his hat to be, like, more Alaskan? Well, he added a ruff, so he's got a wolf ruff now, um, which is competing with the raccoon hat. Uh, I think the raccoon's feeling a little bit uh, discarded, but... <laughs> What's a wolf ruff? Uh, a ruff is that trim that you see on the hoods okay. um, of a lot of these jackets, and you kind of want a multi-haired uh, fur... And the long hair kind of picks up the moisture of your breath or keeps the wind. And the shorter hair kind of wicks the moisture, I guess, to the longer hair. It was something when I first got into these um, winter ultras, you know, I never realized. But now I I guess I realized, you know, a rough is kind of like a status symbol. Um, Wolverine is supposedly the best. Then it kind of goes down to wolf and 
fox and coyote and i guess there's a whole hierarchy of it um so earlier this year i kind of went on a mission to find a rough and at the last moment i found a wolf rough and had a lady sew it on this arcteryx jacket i had um but the problem is is it's so warm unless it's like negative 20 or negative 30 to have your hood up is really uh (laughs) you know it just doesn't really work so I've been debating on, you know, just the wolf ruff on my coat. Do I bring the raccoon hat? I mean, the raccoon hat's a huge favorite. The first time I wore it, I wore it as a joke. And now every single winter race, people want to see it on, whether it's 30 or 40 degrees, I'm sweating my head off, <laughs> or it's, you know, negative 20. So, yeah, yeah. Um, it's been kind of fun. Is it, I wonder if it won't be as unique up in Alaska, you know what I mean? Because I'm like down here in, you know, the continental US, you don't see a lot of wolf roughs and stuff like that. But like you guys are, you guys are out there now, you know? Yeah, we're, we're pretty much in it. One of the, um, you know, all the mushers have them for sure. And a lot of the other entrants, I guess, I've seen it on them, but also the Iditarod Trail is a trail that a lot of trappers use you know in and out of their villages so along the trail to mark their little spur trails for their trapping lines they will actually take an animal body part and hang it in a tree so they recognize you know if they get four feet of snow where to turn left or where to turn right so they say don't be at all surprised if you're you know looking down at the trail at 2 a.m in the morning and then look up and there is you know a wolf head or a wolf leg or some sort of animal's leg or head hanging in a tree marking these trappers trails. Wow. So that's a little eerie itself. Yeah. It was one of the pro tips that he, um, he got from a veteran of the race uh, who said, you know, you're obviously going to hallucinate probably, but don't be worried when you see just random animal body parts along the trail. (laughs) Don't touch them, but they are real. (laughs) Wow. All right. So I definitely, I wrote down pro tips because I definitely want to come back to that. But um, really quick, guys, like, can you kind of catch up, uh, catch everyone up on what you've been doing? So Emily, I know you got, you competed at uh, CCC this summer. That was your big race. And then Ryan, like to train for this, you took on a much warmer Arrowhead 135 this year. Um, can you kind of give us like the summary and like the, the catch up? Yeah, so I did CCC and, uh, got my ass handed to me, um, by those mountains, but it was an amazing experience. And one day, probably if Ryan does PDL, which is the orienteering 183 mile one, I might go back and redeem myself, but learned a lot and it's an amazing race and those mountains are to be respected and to be admired. And, um, it was just awesome. And then the rest of the year, I kind of putzed around and got to my annual, uh, mileage goal and, uh, spent times out in the black Hills running trails there and crewed and paced, uh, I didn't pace, but I crewed Ryan a bunch. He had more than just the arrowhead. He had, uh, Hitchcock 100, and then he did uh, Tuscobia 160 in the pouring rain um, on a snowmobile trail. So Ooh, that was special. I want to hear about that, that because um, I, re- my dad moved to Wisconsin last year and he moved to Park Falls, which is the little town, which is the turnaround spot. Yeah. So that one, that was crazy. And then he did uh, Arrowhead 135. And, um, there's actually an, an order of the Rimthers, which is if you do all three of the winter ultra 
big winter ultras in the U.S., um, Tuscobia, Arrowhead, and uh, Active Etica, I think, in, in Canada. And that one actually took place February 15th, and I was looking at him. I wasn't sure if he was going to do it or not because he had completed <laughs> the other two, and it's a big deal to do all three yeah. and get in this order. And I'm staring at him like, don't you dare do it because you got ITI like two weeks later. And he just was kind of, you know, he was really curious and thinking hard. And I could just see it in his face. I'm like, no, you cannot. <laughs> yeah, I had given it a lot of thought because I had some really good friends who, you know, all had really good winter racing seasons. And so they were going out and uh, it, it tugged at me. But uh, I don't know, I say on the drive up, to Arrowhead the cold year two years ago was kind of when I really found out about this whole ITI business so you know that's been in the back of my mind ever since and I I just I knew that if I came up here I really wanted to give it you know my best shot at a completion and didn't want um, tired legs or anything and I done this Hitchcock Winter Ultra which is like the second week in December and that's 100 miles with about 20,000 ish feet of elevation um, gain and then two weeks after that was the um, Tuscobia 160. And in between there, we had flown to Hawaii for my family's Christmas. <laughs> so uh, we really, we literally left Hawaii on, a, I guess, a Thursday night. Thursday morning. Uh, or, yeah, Thursday morning. Landed in um, Minneapolis, St. Paul. And we had to drive there so we could put a car there. Landed, got in the car, drove over to Tuscobia, got in there about 12.30, 1 o'clock a.m., and I'd missed the mandatory meeting, but luckily enough, uh, I contacted the Scotches who put the race on, and they said I could do my check-in that morning. So I had to get up even earlier to get my check-in there. And then, you know, 10 minutes after my check-in, the gun goes off, and you pretty much march in a straight line for 80 miles to the turnaround. And there's a little bar there, and you can go in and get food and a little drink. And um, upstairs in that bar, they have a couple little rooms with, like, single mattresses laying on the floor and I laid down for about two hours there and then got back up and you know huffed it 80 miles uh back the other way and in between that time it got really warm out in the middle 30s and it started just pouring rain so all these poor fat bikers you know are falling off their bikes every 50 yards 60 yards so the whole way back you just look at the side of the trail and there's all these imprints if you could imagine a guy just riding a bike coming to a stop and falling straight over to his right or left. So that was, you know, that was probably what kept me going is knowing that these bikers were having a much harder time than I was, who was just, you know, going through slush and water and your feet wet and getting a little wet, but they were, they were literally falling like every hundred yards, having to pick up their bike, which probably had 30 pounds of gear on it. Um, so I, I, I feel like it's one of the times where, um, Misery definitely loves company. <laughs> what, like, did you pick up anything from doing Tuscobia or Arrowhead this year that you're going to apply to the Iditarod? Well, Tuscobia was really good. I actually grabbed a chalk bag, you know, like rock climbers had. Yeah. And I'd fill that full of, can- and I'd fill that full of just candy because at last year at Arrowhead, it was always such a rough time going back to the sled, taking gloves off. So by filling that full of candy, I was able to just reach my hand in and just keep eating and keep moving. I, I looked at my tracker and it, you know, at Arrowhead, there was so much time I spent in between, you know, my sled and 
in pulling that, you know, I probably actually went an extra 20 miles because every time you walk six, seven steps back to your sled, to get something to eat. So I did that. And then with it being warm and wet at Tuscovia, you know, foot management was really big. I use a product called uh, Vinepli that um, is kind of like a petroleum-based lubricant slash moisture um, lotion kind of thing. And that really helps me out with my feet, preventing blisters or, you know, preventing trench foot because you were, you know, your feet were literally wet the whole 160 miles, it felt like. And then just knowing that if I, if it was raining and I am getting wet, that, you know, my gear is good enough, I can put up my hood, um, you know, all of that, all of that stuff. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't as bad as it could have been. You know, if I guess if that was my only race and I wasn't building to something bigger, I might've just been like, you know, man, this is rough. Yeah. But it almost like, since you are signed up for this thing, that's even bigger, it's, did it kind of like put it into perspective? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I would, yeah, I would say, you know, perspective and, you know, the learning curve for two or three days out, you know, is one thing, but knowing that this race could take, you know, maybe on a good race, it's six days on a bad race. It's, you know, it's 10 days. You, you, one of the checkpoints is about 90 miles in between and, you know, you could get 40 miles and if a storm blows in, you could be laying in a bivy sack for, you know, a day or a day and a half. It, you know, that, that could happen, I guess. Yeah. I would say that he he approached Arrowhead a lot different this year than, than last year, in part just because the weather was a non-issue, um, but that he took his time out there. And I think he, he kind of saw it as the longer I stay out here, is more of an opportunity to learn things um and you know trying he was trying to be as self-sufficient as possible because out in on itis and they have to be self-sufficient too and plus keeping it in the back of his mind that that was you know the the main goal for the year you know there was no need to push arrowhead yeah. super super hard so um it was just for somebody that was there kind of observing the whole thing i i did um worked a couple of the checkpoints um, he was so calm and so and so collected and, and just looked like he was having a lot of fun, which is kind of sick in its own way. But um, <laughs> yeah, it was, fun I, to, it was fun to watch. Yeah, I have to say, I'm pretty sure you guys through this interview just changed ultra running because chalk bag full of candy is genius. Like, that's so genius. How have I never thought of that? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I get a lot of good looks and. I can't remember what racer, you know, pointed pointed that out to me. Um, you know, I, I I took it from so, someone had had said it to me, but it, you know, the more I find that the more you do you do these, the more little, you know, I guess hat, you know, open quotes pro tips that you learn that people share with you. But yet, in general, it's still kind of a self discovery. Um, you know, you got to put your time in, and I don't think there's anybody that, you know, starts at the starting line of the Arrowhead and and is not a little bit scared, you, you know, um, of the distance, the course and everything that could happen out there. But the excitement was a lot different this year. Whereas my first year, you know, I was scared the whole time. And this year there was just, you know, small stretches where you're a little nervous or scared. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, let's get into that Diderot then. So can you, first of all, can you kind of describe like, what's the event you're competing in? Because I know there are um, kind of like multiple distances, multiple like ways people take this thing on. Like I interviewed a guy last year who had biked the thing and I think he's actually up there uh, this year biking it again. So Steve, uh, his name's Steve Cannon. You should like look out for him. He's a cool guy. Oh, I'm, I'm friends with him. Yeah. Oh, nice. So have you, have you guys met yeah. up? So not not this year, but at Arrowhead this year, I was at the halfway point, and I look over at him. He's got this pink uh, kind of like KT tape all over his face, so it's kind of unique. Yeah. And I go, did you do this last year? I had no idea who he was. I mean, he's like pretty iconic in this sport. Yeah. And he was like, uh, yeah. And I go, you had my second favorite picture of Arrowhead last year. My first favorite was Ryan coming across with the raccoon hat and a facial of snow and ice. But the second was him at the finish line. He had the most epic snot snow beard I have ever seen in my entire life. Like this thing must have weighed 20 pounds. It was so great. <laughs> I wonder if that's, I used some picture of him for the podcast last year and I'm pretty sure it was a giant snow beard. So I wonder if that was the same thing. Yeah. But no, yeah, that's... he's a real nice guy. I had gotten into uh, the coffee shop the morning before Arrowhead and he and a couple of his buddies, um, one of the guys that had done some filming for him last year, I believe, up here, um, you know, we just got to be chatting. And then, you know, we started, we went into the ITI thing. And then, you know, I, I ended up, the nice thing about here is everyone's willing to help you out in any way. So we sat down at the table and chatted for two hours, you know, about different philosophies of, you know, how to race it. And, the you know, he's a, he's a pretty big spiritual guy, I feel like, out on the trail also. Um, so, uh, yeah, Andy's an Iowa guy. So I, I like, uh, I like these Midwesterners crushing all these tough races, Yeah. but back to, back to the whole ITI thing. It's, um, they, they call it the Iditarod trail invitational. Uh, there's a whole history of people, you know, going on this trail other than the dog sled, but I'm not that great of a history guy, so I can't repeat it, but if someone wants to read about it, you know, there's a lot more than I'm going to tell you. But in the current day, um, it's called the ITI, the Durad Trail Invitational. You send in kind of a little bit of a running resume. They have some races they'd like to see you have done and completed. And then they, you know, kind of look through these applications and then they give you a call back and, you know, let you know that if you, you know, if you want in, they're willing to accept you. So I did the whole thing, got in, um, and I'm doing it on foot. You can do it on foot biker ski and i'm doing the 350 which is to mcgrath and then there's the thousand miles that takes i think it's a 30-day cutoff and that goes all the way to nome and um to, to this date and the, my best recollection is people have only been to nome on bike and on foot no one's ever skied it i'm pretty sure that still stands or at least it stood in the last movie i saw and you know that was done on the 2018 course so it's uh you know it's a pretty grueling thing whether you know I hate to I hate to say it but you know when you go to a race and you say well I'm only doing the 350 mile version of this race <laughs> um, you know you just you really realize you know you're you're in a group of unique individuals and if there's a bad idea out there no one's gonna ever tell you you know it's a bad idea because they are all pretty much as crazy as you you know yeah so um all of a sudden that abnormal becomes normal when you know the deeper you dive into the sport just in general i remember my first 
you know, um, 50K and you looked around and you thought everyone was nuts, but then all of a sudden you realized people were going 50 miles and then 100 miles and then, you know, the 100 plus miles. And, you know, it just, uh, it's like this big yarn bar, big snowball on the top of the mountain. By the time it gets to the bottom, it's huge. Yeah. What's it like right now, like being up there surrounded by all the crazy group, you know, all the crazy people doing this race, like, what is what is the feeling right now like just around town? It's it, you know it's pretty big excitement. A lot of the people up here have heard about it. We'd gone out to the start line a few days ago and got in a poll with um, a guy that's going for it. This is Lars Danner. He's going for it on skis. He's already done the three fifty on foot and bike, and this will be his I believe his second attempt to get in on skis. And uh, we met we met another guy who's from Ireland who's now living in Chamonix. He was there and he jumped in um, and did some pedaling with us also. And, uh, you know, you go to the REI. Yesterday I went to the REI to buy stuff I didn't need but thought I might need. (laughs) And there's a group of Italian guys, you know, walking around and they couldn't fly with any lighters or anything. So they're in there looking for lighters or fire starters or, um, you know, something like that. Uh, So it's, you know, it's excited. I'm, I'm excited. We got out on the trail. Emily was running with us. Like four or five mushers went by with their dogs. These dogs have their tongues out, the biggest smiles on their face. Um, it really feels like we're getting a full, you know, Alaska experience. Yeah, that's cool. Do you do you guys start at the same time as the mushers, or are there different times, you know, depending on if you're running it or biking it or anything like that? The musher start a week after us. Okay. And then... Everyone for the 350 and the 1,000 start at the same time, whether you're biking, skiing, or just on foot. Um, and I think there's about 45-ish people in the 350 and maybe the same or a little less and you know that are trying to go to Nome. Wow. That's, yeah, that's crazy, man. Like 1,000 miles on foot through the Alaskan wilderness. And... I mean, just the whole thing, like any, I, I'm, I'm just even imagining going out and going for like a six mile run through the wilderness up there. Like it has to be, I don't know that I did a rod in my mind. Like it just holds this place of, of what I imagine adventure to be, um, you know, cause it's something that you hear about as a kid, it's up in the, in the like North woods and the mountains and there's, there's the animals to deal with and the weather and all that. Like it just, it sounds awesome, man. Yeah. This year they've in the last two weeks, they've gotten, I don't know how many feet of snow, but a lot. And they had the iron dog race, which was last weekend, which is a snowmobile race. And they do like 3000 miles, but they kind of do the last thousand miles of, of our course. And then especially the last 350 miles, the area I'm doing from Anchorage or from basically Wasilla to McGrath, it is, uh, I guess it's this packed, you know, snowmobile trail that they rode in on, but there was a pilot that supports these iron dogs. And when he flew it, he said there was 70 moose on the trail. (laughs) The snow is so deep. These moose are using the trail as, you know, kind of their highway to get from where they want to eat, drink and sleep and you know you can't really shoo a moose off a trail or at least i haven't heard of anyone that had success at it so it's kind of you know i'm really worried that there's going to be a lot of just 
going and then all of a sudden there's moose on the trail and you literally have to just sit there and wait until um you know the moose leaves like some of the iron dog guys would try to go around the moose and the moose would spin in a circle and kick them and one guy had his headlights kicked out on his snowmobile from from the moose so you know they're not scared of a of a snowmobile coming in at them at 80 miles an hour with headlights and noise so i'm pretty sure me and my little sled is not going to scare them at two and a half miles an hour yeah yeah. Wow, man. Well, what, like, what is it about the Iditarod to you that like made you really want to pursue this race? Like, did it capture your imagination? Yeah. Um, you know, it was kind of a new distance. Uh, I like the idea of traveling to the race. Um, you, you know, you know, as an ultra running, you go somewhere and you're going to do this race and there's might be 50 other people, you know, that, around you that have done it and they tell you all these tips and tricks and you know by the time you're ready to do the race you kind of know a lot where the crux is you know what to watch out for all this aid station stuff you watched all these videos on youtube and to me this race had you know when i first thought of it or first started it had you know only known a couple people that had been on it didn't really know what to expect and that was exciting but the more prep i've been doing you know i've been able to reach out to so many of the past participants are the few that there are, but they've given me, you know, hours of their time. There's a guy named Pete Ripmister that uh, he won the thousand foot division. And long story short, I sent him a message on Facebook, you know, Hey, can you do a phone call? And he's like, heck yeah. And he called him on a Friday night, you know, and he lives on the East coast. And we probably talked for two and a half, three hours. And listening to, he was so excited for me to get to that start line and, you know, hear the gun go off and, you know, talked about, you know, you got to, you're going to, you should feel so lucky that, you know, you've been in a, that you've been put in a place that you can make this decision that you want to take on this adventure and, you know, all that stuff. And now it's just getting me so, you know, so excited. The way he talked about it was like, you know, it's a time machine and you get to step in this thing and very few people will ever get to experience what you're about to experience and you know don't take it for granted and just soak it all in and enjoy and you know after I got off the phone call with him if I wasn't excited before the phone call I was certainly you know twice as excited afterwards and you know I just you know I can't wait to get out there get my experience and then you know pay it forward to you know the next guy that has this dream and wants info or or something to that extent, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I and mean, that's the beautiful part about ultra running is you just, I, most people just genuinely want to see everyone be successful at it. And, you know, if it's going to take like an hour of your time to talk about, it, and plus I'm sure he had such an amazing experience. I'm, you know, you want to find these like-minded people to talk, talk uh, about it with, you know? Yeah. Um, so what's like the expectations going in and also like, what are some of the pro tips that you're getting? Um, you know, I think, I think the biggest expectations, like if you would have asked me three months ago, like number one on the list is, you know, finish. And, you know, over these last few months, I think, you know, they've changed a little bit. Like I've realized, you know, the distance and the time, and everything else and now i would say the number one on my list is you know make sure i don't put anyone else in danger but also make sure i you know i don't put myself in danger um 
you know, number twos probably, you know, have as much fun as I can in, until it's either done with or my time out there is done. And it probably goes to number three, you know, is to finish. Um, I just, you know, I realize it's a long time. There's, a, you know, there's a lot of, there's more things that can go wrong than can go right. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't want my family or my friends or anyone else to really worry about me. You know, this is something that's supposed to be fun, but then again, there is a slight risk, you know, to this adventure. And that's kind of been soaking in a little bit more as all of a sudden you, people start talking about the overflow. Well, when the ice gets snow on it, you know, it makes it heavy and it cracks and with the rivers are still running and, you know, they'll come up through the cracks. So there'll be water and, you know, people have fallen in and going on, you know, going underwater and you could still be 40 or 50 miles, you know, from a, a warm place, I guess. So it's, um, you know, just safety, I guess, has really come to the forefront of, of what, you know, what is the top of, I guess, of my goals or, or my planning right now. Yeah. I feel also like, I mean, maybe this is just my, my observation, but if you're, if you're consumed by the worry of the distance and the time, then you don't have the ability to freak out about anything else or be concerned with anything else. And so with his, training up until this point the distance i mean he gets stronger the longer he's out there the further they go i mean he just always has every single race and so i think the distance is less of a worry now and now you've got all this time to think about all the other things that you should have been thinking about the whole time but because you were preoccupied by the distance um so i mean i think a blessing and a curse for sure yeah yeah what are some of the other like what are the biggest factors out on the course that you know, like risk mitigation kind of factors that people should take into consideration. The moose. Yeah, I think yeah. I think this year it'll be the moose. Of course, there's always you know the frost frostbite. Um, you know, at the in McGrath right now, when I got up this morning and checked at like 8 a.m., it was negative 27 degrees there. Um, the kind of the crux of the race is this place called Rainy Pass, where you go up and over the Brooks Range. And that's around a mile, like 110 or 120 or something. And they say, once you get on the other side, you know, you're in it. Um, you're not going to, you're not going to turn around and come back up and over. So once you get to the other side, you know, you're in that. So, you, you know, that's, you know, that's a big deal. And this year they're talking about so much snow, the trail really hasn't been broken up and over rainy. So there's a thing I think it's called uh, Hell's Canyon or Hell's Gate that they might detour you around the pass, but that's an extra 30 miles. Wow. So you kind of, you know, you, you better have a lot of food with you, you know, kind of going into that area to, you know, to see what you're going to have to do. We, I don't know for sure what they're going to do. And for some reason, no one seems to think it's a big deal. They just, they're like, well, if we have to go that way, we'll go that way, you know? And yeah. I'm kind of over here like, well, yeah, but that's 30 extra miles. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> You know, in Alaska, you just take what Alaska gives you. That's what the motto seems to be for for everybody. So it's, um, you know, that's there. But I, I would say my biggest worry is, um, you know, frostbite, whether it's, you know, I've got a pair of waders because, you know, if there's overflow, you could be walking across a stream or a lake and it could be, you know, shin deep, knee deep. You know, I'm not, I don't know, but it, it could be. And I, I don't want to get wet. And, um, you know, in some areas, 
it's not the easiest to build a fire or to, you know to, to dry out like that especially if it's in a snowstorm or a whiteout or um something to that that extent yeah so i think those are and getting lost you know there's you know it's a it's it's a non-marked course but yet you know there's snow machines or other racers or whatnot will have been in front of you but if it if the wind blows you know you could literally see someone up in front of you 200 yards but in between you and them you have no idea how they got to where they they are because the trail's blown in or or drifted in or you know something else yeah what what are some of the tips people are giving you like to handle some of those situations um something about the not not always have with you how long to get to the next station oh um you know some guys say you know write on your clothing if you have to with a marker but always know where you are you know if you're if it's 30 miles to the furthest aid station or 10 back you know and you need to get to one of them you better turn around and go back because once you get to a checkpoint you could always dry off regroup they give you 10 days to do it in theory, you know, it's a little over 30 miles a day. It doesn't sound like a lot, but if you're in thigh deep snow, it could take for a while, but just know guys have, you know, spent two days in a baby sack and still managed to finish, finish the race. Yeah. So, um, you know, just kind of break your race up into segments, know where you are, know where you have to go. And, you know, that should just give you, you know, some comfort. I've been reading these different books and, it seems like when people really freak out, you know, they're like, there should be a checkpoint right here, but there's not, you know, why, why isn't there? Am I lost? And so I've got a, you know, a handheld GPS that I'll use that'll fire up that has another guy who's done the race. Uh, this Tim Hewitt or not Tim Hewitt. I'm sorry. I'm um, Lars Danner. He did the race. So he gave me his GPS file. So I put that on. So that'll kind of give me a good idea of the trail. But yet, that being said, every year the trail's broken in just a little bit different. So um, I guess that knowledge is, you know, seems to be pretty important. Um, try to eat, you know, it's a mixture of the more real foods, the better, but you're still going to be, you know, taking in a ton of sugar. Um, keep your sled as light as possible, but not so, so light you're skimping out on um, necessary items. I went, I'd been debating on what to use for a stove in the past. I'd just you know, carry like an arrowhead, I, I carried a stove, but really never planned on using it because, yeah. um, you know, I was never that far from, from help, but out here, you know, you, it could be a long ways. And I settled on a, you know, basically an alcohol stove. It looks like a cutoff pop can that you dump heat, which is something that the more, um, snowmobilers put in their gasoline to keep it from freezing. So it's basically pure alcohol. So I'll dump that in the can and light it and it'll bring water to boil in about 10 minutes and um you know there's just no moving parts i didn't want to a lot of people bring these msr stoves but if you look at it it's got an on and an off a hose a gas tank you know there's there's all these moving parts that could break or or freeze up or or something and i i wanted something where i literally just take the top off something dump some fuel in an open cup light it on fire and set my pot to boil water on on it um you know the the keep it simple kind of approach yeah well that makes that makes sense because like like you said like if something breaks and you don't know how to fix it you'd be kind of out of luck there 
Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, or if it's that cold and I'm using it, you know, I can't take my gloves off to try to mess with a little screw or, you know, or, or, or anything like that. So, yeah. What also, when oh. you talk, when you talked with Pete um, Ripmaster, who's done the race a bunch of times, it was really cool because Pete kind of went um, checkpoint by checkpoint along. So he basically went through the entire course. And what was neat about the conversation they had was, it really got into, you know, these are areas where you can be pretty, pretty aggressive with, you know, stopping and sleeping versus pushing forward. You know, but here's an area where you really don't want to go unless you've, you know, fueled up both physically and, and literally. And yeah. so um, that, that was kind of a, an interesting way to go about hearing about the race. Um, just kind of anecdotally one of my favorite things that really made the race real to me like about how epic of a journey it was going to be was we were listening to some podcasts I think and the guy was talking about how he wanted to drop and I mean I think we've all been there as as ultra runners where we've all wanted to just call it a day and for this race if you want to call it a day outside of McGrath at 350 it could be you know, $1,200 to get a flight out of some of these towns. And so he's like, I literally did not have the cash on me to drop out of the race. <laughs> and so I had to keep going. And I was just like, oh, my God, this race is insane. Um, and so, you know, thinking about the decisions like that, that would ha- you'd have to make, you know, do I want to keep going or do I want to fork over $1,200? Like it kind of just puts the the kind of headspace around the race at a whole different level than what you would typically expect for a thousand miles. So you have to start thinking strategically about here's where I'm going to push it. And here's where I'm going to play it conservative because you don't really have another option. Yeah. And these towns don't have like these towns don't have roads going to them. They're the only way you're getting to them is by dog sled or by snowmobile. So, you know, it, it, it's pretty remote. Um, You go into Squetna or something and they might have a little lodge or Nikolai and, I mean, there's no cars driving around, so it um, that kind of also adds to the excitement. Yeah. Well, Ryan, do you ever, like, I don't know, just from talking with you and hearing Emily talk about you, like, it just seems like you are very even-keeled. Um, do, do you ever get, like, shook up in a race, or does the thought of, you know, uh, like a DNF, like, ever come into play? Um. I I think about all the you know I I think about the DNFs all the time. Um, it's a pol- it's a part of ultra running. If you do enough races, you, you know statistically something's going to go wrong eventually. I'm yeah. not willing to like I said put myself in danger, put someone else in danger, or make this my last race by pushing through a horrible injury. You know I've been really lucky. I've been re- really lucky to you know I've gone through this last year. I did a series called the Gnarly Bandits. Um, which I think was four 100 races plus a hundred K. And then on top of that, went to Hitchcock Arrowhead to, to Scobia, you know, all in the, you know, kind of the build up to this race. That being said, in between those races, I had, you know, basically to take a lot of, a lot of time off. And at some points it was just, you know, my only training was just, you know, riding a little bit of bicycle, doing a little bit of running, but I was truly just trying to recover whether it was my feet or other things, you know, just be between the races. So it kind of, my training was just race to race to race. But up here, you know, when you talk to people, it's like, you know, about the Iditarod and they say how extreme it is and this and this, but they always follow it up with, well, no one's died yet, you know, 
yeah. like, oh, okay, it's pretty safe because no one's no one's died. You know, they've walked to Nome a thousand miles, but since no one's died, it you know it's pretty safe. That being said, people have lost body parts, which yeah. you don't always hear about in other races. So, you know, you just you got to kind of take it what it is. And I've said this a million times: whether the race is twenty four hours or seven days. There are going to be points in your race where it's not going good. You know, in a shorter race, it could be minutes, it could be an hour or so, but don't let that time ruin, you know, the uh, 24 hours of your race that did go well. Um, it, you know, we're so quick to focus on, you know, the bad rather than, you know, you know, the amount of good times. So in this race, I'm, you know, I could have a bad day, but I'm not going to let it ruin my seven good days that it takes, you know, that I'll need to also get to the finish line. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Emily, like while, while Ryan's out there, what's, what's your plan? Cause you just mentioned you can't drive to a lot of these towns. No, it's probably why he, he mentioned he's excited about that. And that's because I usually am annoying in, at, at aid stations, um, asking him a million questions. And so he's like Whew, seven <laughs> days without hair bothering me and interrupting my race. But that cannot um, be yeah, true. <laughs> oh it's totally true i drive him nuts at aid stations he's like lady leave me alone um no so i can't go i i can watch his spot device tracker like everybody else and that's yeah. all i can do i don't even get to go to the finish line um because it's 300 dollars of a bush plane flight out there and you know 200 dollars a night to to stay there so um i'll have a beer waiting for him when he gets home and in the meantime um We'll go to the start, and then I think we're going to try and they have these things called trail ferries, where along the way, um, generous souls. I think you do a lot of through hiking. Maybe you've heard about trail ferries. But, yeah. Uh, uh, I asked one of the veterans if there was a place where we could see Ryan um, and the racers go through relatively close to the start. And at mile ten, it sounds like there's an intersection that I can drive to. And so we were, my sister and my best friend are coming up. Um, and we're going to do a little girls trip. Uh, and so I think the first day after they set out, we're going to go and do something, whether it be get a vat of coffee or hot chocolate or some peeps, um, and hand out to the racers at mile 10. Um, you know, yeah, you're almost there that, that, that annoying. You're almost there. You're almost there guys. <laughs> you got this. Even, <laughs> you got this. You're almost there. Only 340 more miles. Yeah. Or, you know, whatever. you're closer um, than you were. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> So that's yeah, cool. We're going to go explore Alaska. And then you're staying up in Alaska for when he finishes. Yeah. So my sister and my best friend hang out for a couple of days and then my mom is actually going to come up. We're staying. We're, we were lucky to come early and stay late because of the generosity of some family friends who live up here. They were so excited that somebody wanted to come to Alaska in March. Yeah. Um, that they, they said, no, no, you're staying with us. So, um, the Samuelsons have been wonderful and, um, they're letting us stay, uh, before and after the race, which is, which is great. Wow. So what, yeah. What is Alaska like in February? Like that's not a common time for people to be like, I'm going to Alaska for a few weeks. Um, I mean, from the Dakotas, it's less windy, which is a blessing. Um, Temperature wise, it's about the same. Yeah. They've got more snow and worse plow system. We've <laughs> noticed, but that might be because our runner, our rental car doesn't even have all wheel drive. We're in a Chevy Malibu two wheel. It's pretty. pretty I dicey. didn't <laughs> think they allowed cars up there without all wheel drive. 
Well, we thought the uh, rental car company was just trying to stick us into paying for a four-wheel drive car. When we got here, there's no way they'd have, like, a Chevy Malibu to rent. Yeah. But they kind of, you know, they, so we didn't pay for the upgrade. Then we got here, and sure enough, they had a Chevy Malibu. And everyone who we run into, they're like, whoa, you rented that, huh? <laughs> Did you Brian ask them? <laughs> were you like, Brian look around, guys? Come on. Yeah. So Brian's like, I mean, it's your call. I'm going to be gone. So I guess if you want the upgrade, guilt, guilt, guilt. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, yeah, I guess like, you know, to kind of wrap up a little bit, like, I don't know, just is there is there a tip for the moose? Like when the moose is in your way beyond just waiting, is there like a moose whisperer who's kind of like telling you guys like, hey, this is what you have to do? Like, I don't know. I think you've got a lot of really bad ideas thrown Ooh. at him Ooh, yeah, yeah people have said people have said bring an m80 um <laughs> you know i've heard i've heard of a lot of stuff but i i honestly think you you better just sit down and boil water and make something warm to eat and just just wait yeah uh, hopefully you know hopefully there's not a ton of them or i mean a you know in between people or with people or something that you know might have gotten them off the trail but it, i i think it I think it could be the year of the moose this year. Yeah. We saw 18 just in one day alone. On the trail? Like when you went out on the trail? Uh, When we were driving to a cabin and then at the cabin, a combination of the two, we saw 18 in one day. Wow. Wow. The year of the moose. That should be the like the the t-shirt for the Iditarod this year. Maybe you should get a moose rough. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, full circle. Yeah, full circle, full full circle. Well, Ryan, man, like, (laughs) I got to say, like, I am wishing you the absolute best of luck and, you know, be safe out there. And, uh, yeah, I'm I'm just excited. Like, I'm excited for you. And I will be living uh, vicariously through that little blue dot on the Iditarod tracker through you. Well, uh, you know, I appreciate it, and I can't wait for you to call me next year and say, hey, Ryan, tell me everything I need to know so I can kick uh, ass in the 350 ITI this winter. My my mom just turned off the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, man, I would absolutely, like, if you, you know, if I would be so honored if, like, in a month from now I, I got the opportunity to sit down with you guys and, like, just hear about the adventure that that happened through the race so um so yeah dude i like i said it's just it's sweet like being able to look at a race as epic as the iditarod and having someone to root for is is just like a really cool like unique experience for me but that being said yeah the iditarod is uh it's it's definitely piqued my interest a little bit i don't i don't know 350 is pretty long man for me but uh that's how it starts <laughs> that's how it starts yeah the little seed planting moment um where where can people kind of like follow along um i'll, ha- I'll have to send you the link I, d- I don't know off the top of my head all okay. my family's been asking um we haven't even officially got our trackers yet so they've kind of kept that a little bit um on the down low i i guess um you know it just seems like you know, you, when you get here, they're just like, you get your stuff when you get your stuff. 
you know, kind of attitude and no one seems worried or anything. So just trying to go with the flow, I guess. They're yeah. preparing you for the moose. Yeah. You got to go with the flow with the moose too. <laughs> so. It's really Zen, you know, like the moose is going to like teach you patience. Yeah. <laughs> Sensei. Walk when I say walk. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you guys for coming on the show. And uh, like I said, hopefully we can catch up with you guys soon. Yeah. That sounds great for sure. All right. Well, best of luck. Be safe. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Right, thank you, guys. All right, guys. That's a wrap on the show. Uh, like I said, follow along if if you are listening to this right when this podcast comes out. Um, Ryan is out there. He's braving the elements. He's taking it on. There was a crap load of snow um, right at the beginning of the race. Um, kind of just a giant blizzard moved in. Um, he is out there battling that and in his raccoon skin hat. <laughs> um, and he's, I don't know, man. I hope I'm not overdoing the praise because that's not the intention. But I got to say, I'm so impressed by these two. And I'm, they, I'm, so in, I'm so incredibly inspired. Um, over the last few days during my workouts, I've been thinking about this. I'm like, oh, I'm going for an hour run today. Ryan is still in Alaska battling the Iditarod. Um, and I got like that pushes me forward and it makes me want to dream big. And that's something I've learned from doing the show. Uh, dreaming, you got to dream big. There are people out there that do it. You know, we hear about this, like, hopefully we have Ryan back on in the future. And he's just like, yeah, I ran the Iditarod. Now he can say that and we always see the end results but it resulted from that original dream of his and the original kind of thought must have creeped in like hey you could do this you could do the iditarod and it seems crazy to all of us um like regular folks who's not used to running hundreds of miles through the snow uh but to to ryan it's probably more doable more realistic because he put in the time and he put in the work and he learned the lessons, you know, you got to think what he, what he used to build up to this. I mean, he did Arrowhead last year. He did Tuscobia 160 miles this year. He did Arrowhead again. Like he has built, and that's just a couple of the, of the examples. Like he's done so much more to build that base and slowly uh, scaffold his way to the point where he is able to fly up to Alaska and have confidence in getting it done. Um, and there's a lot to be said about that. Um, also, I just got to shout out Emily. Like, I'm as I'm watching the tracker, I'm like freaking out for Ryan, who I've never met in person. And I'm like, man, this this whole week has got to be really mentally and emotionally tough on her and on anyone who is his family. But the fact that they have an understanding and have empathy of like, this is what he wants to do. This is what he's passionate about. And I'm going to support him all the way. Um, that's awesome. That's amazing. Like you guys are incredible. I was thinking about that all week at, well, after recording the podcast and I'm just like, wow, like the support and the love that it takes to, to let somebody go out and, and take this thing on is, is 
just tremendous. Um, so big shout out to you, Emily. Um, also, guys, check, I mean, read up on Iditarod Trail Invitational. You know, when I was a kid, I always thought about, you know, you always hear about the Iditarod and the famous dog race version. Uh, but know that now there's there's people who run it. There's people who bike it. Um, there's the 350-mile version. There's the 1,000-mile. Like, this is, this is an epic, epic, epic adventure. That was three epics, and that's a word that I try to avoid sometimes <laughs> so I don't overuse it. Um, so, yeah, so it's pretty cool. Um, and like I said, if you haven't heard them on the podcast before, their episodes are some of my favorites. So go back and check those out. I believe it was episode number 133 that was with Ryan and then episode number 157 with Emily. So I would much appreciate that. You guys will enjoy it. You'll hear some stories about being freezing cold and, you know, running up just giant mountains and taking on all sorts of sweet Midwestern ultras, which, you know, as somebody who's about to take on a Midwestern ultra, I'm psyched about. I love the Midwest. Midwest is the best. Um, yeah. So go check those out. That'd be cool. All right, guys, let's wrap it up here. Um, we'll get back at you later this week. I'm super pumped. All right, see you.